Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast with your host, Charles Cantu, founder and CEO of Reset Digital. I'm Mike Burbridge, Director of Marketing Futures and the producer of this fair podcast. I hope you brought your thinking caps, kids, because we're about to get heady. Today, we're talking with Dr. Joseph Riggio, expert in cognitive behavior and neuroscience, and a renowned executive trainer and consultant for nearly 30 years. Dr. Riggio breaks down the carrot versus stick motivations and why FOMO might be every marketer's favorite buzzword, but is a terrible way to base your long-term strategy. Instead, Dr. Riggio recommends possibility-based marketing, which leverages joyful emotions and consumer aspirations to influence purchaser decisions. Welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Cantu. With me today, I have Dr. Joseph Riggio, cognitive scientist, neuroscientist, and overall amazing guy. And uh, today's particularly special for me because he's been a longtime friend, and I'm excited to share him with the world in this way. Um, Joe, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and background, and then I will circle back and share with them kind of the connective tissue and, and uh, start talking a little bit more about how what you do could be applied in marketing and advertising and branding and so on. Sure. When, you know, when people ask me to do this, Charles, I always like to start at the, what I call irrelevant history. And the irrelevant history is I was an architect for 10 years. And at the end of that 10 year period, I was a partner in a firm and I was making a decision about where I wanted to be for the rest of my life. I was just about to turn 30 I had a two-year-old son, I was married, and I was looking at a future where I was 60 years old, sitting in a chair at a table drawing and knowing I wanted to do more with people than with paper. And so I left. Mm -hmm. I basically quit that position. And I trained dogs for the next four years while I began studying cognitive science. And it was in the process of working with dogs that I really learned how important what we do and the way we do it, our behavior and even the behavior of how we speak, the tonality that we use, the framing that we put around language is more important in creating outcomes than very often the language that we use. And when you can match those two things up, you can meet up the actual language you're using and the behavior that you're associating with that language, which includes the way you speak and what you do when you're speaking, you can massively move people to take all kinds of action. And then from there, I went on and I studied some more mid-2000s, did my first doctorate, which was in business administration with a focus on leadership decision-making when in the context, there wasn't the information with which to make a decision. And yet these leaders had to make high quality decisions nonetheless. And then a little later on, I went back to school and did a second doctoral work in an area of cognition, looking at the ontology or who it is that we are when we're making these great decisions. Is that different than we're making lousy decisions? and uh, finishing up the dissertation on that right now as we speak. So I've really put a lot of time and energy into looking at the people or the person behind the decisions that are being made, behind the way that we motivate ourselves and others to take action. Because fundamentally, if what we're doing isn't producing action and results and outcomes, I'm not really interested. I'm not interested in theory for theory's sake, but I love theory for application's sake. Sure, sure. And I'll, I'll let a secret out. So um, essentially, you have been a mentor and coach of mine for a long, long period of time. You've helped me through some of these decisions personally um, at very st 
stressful uh, juncture. So it's not like you just help people make decisions, right? Bezos had mentioned that, you know, he makes maybe three really great decisions per day, and that's all that should be expected of a CEO of a company that large. But let's tie it also back to this whole premise of influence and how somatically, neurologically, how we're, how people are wired and, and how marketers are falling short by inducing, you know, what I would say stick motivation and get people to act when, you know, your words, not mine, the excitatory state uh, is the best place to be. Can you, can you share a little bit about your thoughts on that? Sure. So let, let's go right to the heart of it. For me, it's all about decisions. They're all decisions. We're asking our clients, our customers to make a decision, to choose us over someone else, to choose to purchase now versus later, to choose to purchase this thing versus some other thing, or to choose to take action versus no action at all. These are decisions. So we're constantly looking to influence the decision-making process. And that's what marketers do. And the ones who do it really well kind of own the decision-making process. They lead someone through the beginning all the way to the end of having considered what it is they want to be doing and then actually taking action, as I say, the most important thing to take action and doing the thing, right? Making the purchase, committing to a, a brand, whatever it may be. Yep. yep. And so if we go to what you're calling stick motivation, and I'm just going to stick with that language for a moment, what you're actually talking about is how do we induce fear in a customer or client? And my question is, why the heck would we want to do that? Why do we want to yep. induce fear? And the reason that someone will give you who, who buys into this theory is to get them to move away from whatever they're doing currently or doing nothing to f making them feel compelled to do something to get out of this state of terror that you induce them to get into. The challenge with that, Charles, is that they can associate that fear, that terror with you. And that's not a great thing to have happen as a marketer. You know, you don't want people to be afraid of Coca-Cola. You want them to drink Coca-Cola. And that's right. You know, this is this is what happens. And you'll notice, for instance, one of the greatest brands on the planet, like what they do or not, is Coca-Cola. And you never see them use fear-based advertising. You never used to see them use fear-based marketing. What do they do? Right. They inspire you. They go to this other side, what you call the excitatory and what I call the excitatory as well, or possibility-based marketing. So they lead you to go, hey, my life could be full of joy and happiness and people that I care about and love and holidays and vacations, and I can be good looking and have a six-pack ab, all if I drink Coca-Cola. <laughs> exactly. Six-pack, the, the real definition of six-pack six abs, right? <laughs> um, exactly. So... What I would also love uh, to have you share with the audience is kind of what would be the process uh, in your mind that a, that a brand would want to take to make sure that they're motivating people or inspiring people in the right ways, ensuring that they're not anchoring those negative feelings and emotions to the brand while they're you know honing their craft, so to speak. All right. So the first answer is going to be don't go there. Right. If you don't want to anchor fear to your product, to your brand, to yourself, don't induce it in the first place. So what we found, we did a lot of research in the early 1990s, and we found it consistent through time because we continue to go back and look at that research and retest our premise that about after four times of engaging with fear-based motivation, the person who's engaged with it begins looking for alternatives 
that will not induce that sense of discomfort that is used to motivate them to take action. So in other words, you can get a person to buy about four times using fear-based motivation, but then their loyalty to your brand or your product or their purchase begins to waver. They start looking for something else, which is going to satisfy them without that fear being present. And this is consistent regardless of the product, regardless of whether it's transactional and I'm buying a chocolate bar or whether it's a major decision that they're making about a long-term purchase, which has got lots of implications in technology and complexity to it, let's say. So what we looked at was how do we instead begin to build a model which gives them a way out of that? And so we began to develop this concept we call the satisfaction cycle. And literally, the key was to start by inducing a sense of satisfaction right at the beginning of the process with the client. And that starts with reminding them about what's already good in their life, what's already working. And again, if I go back to Coca-Cola, this idea that you see them using very familiar themes of comfort and joy, um, Christmas themes or family themes or holiday themes when they're using their marketing. And companies who have figured out how to do this and how to tap into that sense of possibility And the person already having a sense of being satisfied with their life, but it can be even better, really begin to build deep brand loyalty and also create high levels of motivation because they build a different kind of stress in the system. And I think the key is building the right kind of stress when you're a marketer. That gives me pause. There's a lot packed in there. Um, Maybe the best thing to do from here is, is probably just circle back on this whole idea of um, you know engaging, or you generally are engaged with you know board members, uh, CEOs, folks of that stature when when decisions are tough, right? And we'll come back to the marketing piece in a second, but can maybe talk a little bit about what that process has been. I've been through it, I understand it, but but the listeners don't, so it'd probably be good for them to kind of understand what that process looks like for them and you. If, if they were to, you know, pursue something like this. Okay. So again, as you suggest, let's go back to the beginning, if you will, and understand that every decision that a person makes that leads to them taking action of any kind, whether it's to go towards something or away from something. And those are the only two decisions we make. We're either moving towards or away from something, right? Avoidance yeah. or attraction is based in a feeling that we have in our bodies. Those feelings in our bodies are based in neurochemistry. So what we're really doing, whether we're leaders and we're leading a team of people and trying to build collaboration and action, or whether we're marketers and we're trying to motivate clients and customers to take action, or whether we're in a team as a collaborator and trying to create some mutuality of action within the team so we can move something forward, is we're trying to create the feelings that are associated with the right kind of action we want someone to take. That action is always associated with some future outcome, something that hasn't happened yet, but will happen in the future. And this is actually a neurochemical state. So we're, we're manipulating at a very fundamental level, and I know not many people think of it this way, but it's the reality. We're manipulating the neurochemistry of the people we're interacting with. And there's certain neurochemical cocktails, ways that the neurochemistry is present that creates very strong, positive, almost compulsive relationships with the way we're going to take action to create the future that we intend. And if we can do this in a way that's powerful, 
we can begin to set up the decision so it becomes almost instantaneous and effortless for the person to make it because we're building the right kind of cocktail, the right kind of neurochemistry where the feelings they have associated with the action they're going to take dispel any sense of resistance, which means basically there is no fear present. There is no sense of a problem or a limitation that they have to deal with. And there's a go, go, go forward signal in the system that makes them want to do whatever it is that's in front of them to be doing. Right. So we see this very obviously in places like sports where we see athletes that are on the edge of a field waiting to get into the game because they're so pumped up. They so much want to be a part of the action on the court or on the field that they almost can't restrain themselves from running on and taking action. That's almost how we want people to be, but with varying levels of intensity. And I hope that makes sense, but I really want you to get this idea. It's based in a feeling and feelings are neurochemical. And what we're doing is we're manipulating the neurochemistry of people by making these futures incredibly positive and bright for them in a way which is overwhelmingly appealing and creates this kind of compulsion to action. The ANA is looking to showcase the most innovative, impactful, and groundbreaking brand activation campaigns of 2019. Get the recognition you deserve by entering the 2020 ANA Reggie Awards. Honoring excellence in brand activation marketing campaigns, this preeminent awards program is open to internal and external agencies, corporate marketing teams, media firms, and marketing solution providers, and recognizes small and large brands across all industries. This year's program will feature 23 categories, ranging from influencer, experiential, and promotional marketing to challenger brands, sports or esports marketing, and the coveted Marketing Futures Reggie. You might even end up as a guest of this podcast. Do you have what it takes? Enter now at reggieawards.org before the final deadline of January 29th, 2020. That's R-E-G-G-I-E awards.org. People are probably going to have to rewind that a few times to make sure that they, to make sure that they've gotten it. Um, but that's exactly why I wanted you on the show. So um, one thing that you introduced me to that I've actually seen come up many, many times since then uh, has been this whole, um, how do I say it, methodology around a hero's journey and Joseph Campbell um, and, and how to tell stories. Can you talk a little bit about that phase of your work and how marketers might want to deploy or employ some of those tactics? Well, in essence, what's happening is that this, again, keeps revolving around the same ideas. And yep. the hero's journey is an exciting premise about someone being in a place and in a way in their life that they want to be. So they become the hero. And Joseph Campbell laid out the structure of how humans mythologically orient to this idea of being a hero in their own lives and in the world in general, right? So if you can think about this, imagine for a moment that what we're doing is we're designing a pill. And we're going to give this pill to whoever it is we're working with, the people who work for us, our colleagues, the clients and customers we want to work with. And what the pill does is it doesn't make them do anything. But what it does is it organizes them to be very, very open to a possibility of being able to take action that will lead to a successful and positive outcome for them, something they feel is important to them. And 
then we're going to begin to input into that experience they're having of feeling very positive and very highly oriented to take action, the kind of data that's going to give them the impulse to take action in a particular direction. In essence, that's what the hero's journey is. It goes, you're starting out and there's this, what he called the call to adventure. I like to call it like a kind of a tickle that's unresolvable without taking action, without getting into the adventure. And then Joseph Campbell says, you have to cross the threshold, right? And this is the hard part because the threshold, you know, it's like in Star Wars, the bar scene or in the Matrix where Neo's kind of got to make the choice. Is he going to take the red pill or the blue pill? There's always this choice that the hero is confronted with and they recognize, in essence, what I'm giving up is life as I know it today. And I have to believe with some degree of certainty that the future that I'm going to be moving into will be at least as good, if not better than the one I have. And that means they're moving away from what's currently true for them, that they feel limits them in some ways, but simultaneously moving towards something that's always bigger and more expansive that they can't quite contain as they are today. So if, I, if you give me the moment to go back and I said I was studying this ontological piece, who is it that makes the decision? We're really tapping into the idea that who you are today can't contain the possibility of your future. And we can build that idea, that language for that possible future in such a way that the person is fully excited and engaged by it, but recognizes they have to do something to become a bit different for it to be possible for them to actually access and contain that amount of possibility, that amount of excitement, that amount of potential. And they're willing to let go of who they know themselves to be, which is the big challenge. This is the big threshold condition you're constantly fighting in leadership. You're constantly fighting this in marketing. You're fighting this when you're having a conversation with your wife or your children, or your parents, whoever, that they want to stay in their comfort zone. They don't want to go where it's, there's an unknown. But now we build something that's so desirable in the way we present it and how we are when we're presenting it that they can't help but want to have a piece of it for themselves. So that's where the hero journey leads. It leads across this threshold. And then there's a whole number of steps that occur after the fact. But if you can make this point where you get them across the threshold, you get them to take that first step, I would say like 90% of the journey is complete. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Again, people I'm imagining are going to want to rewind that as well. One more thing that I'd like to to throw out there is because this isn't just um, this whole thought of cognitive and neuro, it does tie into, and you've taught me this, the somatic self, right? And how that comes into play from, you know, a, a boardroom meeting, a, a sales interaction, just understanding probably what you noticed in animals first, um, but we're no different this whole somatic self and all those things that you've studied can be made sense of by influencers or marketers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Because as I said, all of everything we're talking about, Charles, and everything I think you, you're going to be talking about with anyone when you're having this conversation around marketing, and I don't care how twisted you have to get to get there, is going to be about this fundamental idea of the feelings that people have when they're responding to whatever message they're encountering. Right. And when I was a kid, a little bit younger, not so much a kid, but a young man, I used to love watching uh, Steve Irwin, the crocodile guy. Right. And you'd watch him interact with these animals 
And it was amazing the way he would read the animals and be able to get away with things. And we're talking about saltwater crocodiles who are dangerous creatures or snakes or, you know, all kinds of animals. And he would be able to manipulate himself to get them to put their guard down. And therefore, he could, as I say, get away with certain things that an average person could not. And that was all body-based stuff. And then I began watching these other shows, and, and two of them that I want to point out, because you can go watch them and get some of these lessons for free, are Lie to Me, which was based on the work of a guy named Paul Ekman, who studied these very, very subtle emotional cues that are present at the nonverbal level in people's behavior, and especially in their facial expressions. And he called these micro-expressions. And Lie to Me, the TV show, what's his name? Tim, can't think of his last name right now. Any case, he you know, was setting up this premise in the show and, and based on the real life of work of Paul Ekman, that there was a way to read people and he could work with, again, marketers and business people as well as the FBI and use this information to know what to do in, in live real-time action to cause people to respond in very particular ways or to know a bit more than was normal, ordinary, about what other people were thinking beyond what they were saying. And then there's this new show out there right now, Bull, about trial science. And it's based, again, in real-life work of a, a famous trial scientist. And this is, again, looking at – in the show, you'll see him analyze someone and they'll, they'll behave in a particular way. They'll look at their watch or they'll tap their leg or they'll make a facial expression and he'll meta comment on it like he's talking to himself in his own head about what it means about what they're doing. Well, this is real life stuff and we're always doing it all the time. It's just a question of how skillful you are at it. So as you know, being a client of mine and a friend, I do this work all the time, both I'm doing it, but I'm showing other people how to do it as well. So their sensitivity and their acuity in knowing what they're noticing and what it means that they're noticing and what to do with what it means that they're noticing becomes of a much, much higher caliber. So now all of a sudden you go into a situation and where it was like you were blind before, not only can you see, but you have x-ray vision. And you're in a situation where you know things about people that you have no right to know according to the ordinary conversation about social context. Yeah, I always warn my employees that ask me to teach them this stuff. Um, be careful what you wish for. Not everybody wants to see the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So, I like that. And, yeah. and and it's true stuff. They come back and go, "I wish I didn't know all this anymore." Well, it's you know, once you once the blinders are off, you can't put them back on. Yeah. Um. So so what I'd like to kind of you know wrap it up. I ask everybody the same kind of questions towards the end of this, and and it is, um, what are your thoughts of opinion and opinions around you know diversity in the workplace and, and in, in the marketing sector, which is uh, actually a little bit behind on that, but, but making great strides as per the ANA's last release. Well, it depends on definitions. So we're going to have to be a little bit more precise here. In, in my mind, this is diversity and inclusion across everything from you know race, gender, age, uh, weight, uh, religion, you name it. And inclusion thereafter, which essentially to me means, you know, not only bringing them on the team, but also uh, making, creating an environment where people are comfortable being who they are. So I think I'm probably going to give an answer which not everybody would like or agree with. And probably because I feel like in some ways I'm a little bit ahead of the times. 
in that my idea of diversity is to the point where we simply don't have any need for it because we're literally treating everyone as equal, no matter what their history is. And we're still at a point in the history of our diversity understanding and our understanding of inclusion that we're defining people by the groups they belong to. And as long as we do this, we can't have diversity because we'll still see people as black or women or Latino or um, a Native American or white or heterosexual or homosexual or um, transsexual. It, it, it doesn't matter what category or label you put on someone. What you've done is you've fractionated society. And as soon as you fractionate society like that, you're going to create special classes. And as soon as you create special classes, you create us against them. And as soon as you create us against them, somebody feels left out and somebody feels empowered. And those roles of empowerment and being left out, disempowered, shift and flow back and forth in an ever-present matrix. And I think that's the issue. And we have to find some way to get beyond fractionating our society and creating inclusion, which means there is no difference. If you are qualified and you're capable, you get hired, you get paid, you get access to resources, you get access to do these things that you want to do, you get access to education, whatever it may be, and we don't have any differentiations based upon this idea of what someone is or is not. Not the right message for this moment in time, but you asked the question. Great response. I appreciate the answer. And um, I think you're probably going to get a good amount of phone calls from HR departments on advice on how to cross that chasm. Um, Cause that's a, that's a whole ball of wax in and of itself. I agree. Um, I agree. To, to, to keep it a little lighter. Uh, generally what I ask folks is favorite album of all time and what they're listening to now and why. So favorite album of all time. Wow. Really tough. But if I have to pick just one, it would have to be Led Zeppelin four. So time, you know, a creature of my, my time and place, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that's where I'd go. That's, that's the album I'd point to. And what I'm listening to now is I'm listening to a lot of different things. Um, you know, I have a 19-year-old daughter, so I'm listening to things that I would never listen to were it not for my 19-year-old daughter and uh, some of the music she plays for me. And she's a student in France right now, so I'm listening to a lot of French rap. And I never knew I liked rap until it wasn't in English. <laughs> so I, so she's like, dad, you like this? And I'm like, I really like this. This guy's great. He's got a great voice. I love the rhythms. I love what he's doing with the sounds. You know, I have no idea what he's saying, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you have to, you have to send me a sample. Uh, <laughs> I'll send you a playlist. I, I got it set up on Spotify. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Um, well, so we're, we're kind of winding down here. I would love uh, for you to share, you, you know, whatever information you want to share, anything, any events you have coming up, anything like that with the audience and how people can get a hold of you. Um, I'm a little afraid to do that because, uh, you know, it's so hard to get time in front of you nowadays. You're, if you get any busier, I might, I might cry, but I know you'll <laughs> carve some time out for me. Always carve out time for you, man. You're, you're, you're way, way up at the top of the list. But uh, I appreciate I'm actually going to just say I'm not, I'm not going to really give people an, an easy way to get in touch with me because I'm not super available in that way. I'll tell you a little yep. bit about what we do, and then I'll give you a way to get in touch. Um, I will give you yep. access. And the number one thing that I do right now is I help people de develop and design very high levels of strategic persuasion. And that can mm -hmm. be 
for a board meeting. That can be for a team of investors. That could be for a marketing department who's trying to put a new product into place or to renew and bring life to an old product. It could be for an individual who needs to just position themselves and create an individualized brand for themselves. And we're doing this very high level, what we call structured persuasion as a service. And because it's so intense, we really work with a very limited number of people doing this at any given time. And what we're doing is looking at the particular outcome they need to achieve. We're doing an analysis of all of the stakeholders they need to reach out to and how they do it. And then we're building for them structured persuasion strategies and language and actual scripts, if you will, that we train them on. And the intention is to get way past the script so that they can spontaneously and extemporaneously interact in any situation with a fluid skillfulness. And that's really the thing I'm most interested in doing these days. We're doing it with a number of multinational clients we work with around the world. Um, I've got some private individual clients who are very high rollers, we could say, um, who are you know angel investors and venture capitalists who we do some work with who need to be persuasive in very particular ways. And we've done some work with some people in positions that I can't speak about that um, need to be influential in, in negotiations of various kinds. So I love that work. And the best way to get in touch with me is actually to send me a note and uh, reach out to me via email. And the easiest email to reach me on is joseph at josephregio.com. And I'd be happy to respond to anyone. And the best place to start is the conversation and see if there's some things we want to do together or can do together. I'm happy to look at anything that involves that kind of persuasive environment or influential environment and see where you're succeeding and where you might not be succeeding the way you want to and help you redesign and structure it so that you're succeeding only in the ways that you want to. So I hope that that is useful in some way to someone at some point. And uh, as always, this this goes too quick with you, Charles. It's always, uh, you know, time runs out fast on us. I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Joseph Riggio. I'm your host, Charles Cantu, on the Marketing Futures podcast of the ANA. And you heard it here first. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ANA Marketing Futures podcast. Have an idea for a future guest or topic? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ANA.net. Don't forget to subscribe to ANA Marketing Futures Podcast on the Apple Podcast Network and leave us a review. We'd love to know what you think. Finally, if you can't get enough of consumer neuroscience, I've got just the place for you. Head on over to marketingfutures.ana.net.